From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington. For me, the greatest threat to religious freedom is the idea that some in America are able to dictate what religion means, what morality means to the rest of us. This month, the Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch takes his seat as the next president of Interfaith Alliance. At such a critical moment for true religious freedom in this country and for democracy itself, you'll hear a conversation among Paul and two presidents emeriti of the Alliance, Reverend Welton Gaddy and myself, looking back at 24 years of cumulative history leading the organization, as well as 16 years of State of Belief Radio. The percent of Americans who identify with any religion has been on the decline for decades. A lot of ink has been spilled in recent years reporting and analyzing the relentless decline in the percentage of Americans affiliating with organized religion. Now Pew Research Center has released a comprehensive new report modeling the future of religion in America with possible projections that have been making headlines. Hughes senior researcher Stephanie Kramer will have the details. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and a vision for victory. After the modern Orthodox Yeshiva University in New York City blocked student efforts to form an LGBT group, activists sued. An appeal to a lower court ruling demanding dignity for queer students reached the Supreme Court, which has now refused to reverse the ruling, even as Samuel Alito claimed this gives the state the right to interpret scripture. While the high court could actually take up the full case later, it is interesting that for the 4 to 5 minority, state government now seems required to justify its secular anti-discrimination laws in scriptural terms. What could possibly go wrong? Meanwhile, brace yourself for a daily, even hourly onslaught of sincerely held religious fundraising from political dark money front groups like Family Research Council, thanks to the sudden delay this week of a much-anticipated Senate vote on the Inclusive Respect for Marriage Act to after the midterm election. The fear-mongering writes itself, Stand for biblical truth this November. Only your vote will prevent Chuck and Nancy from making biblical marriage illegal in God's America, and so forth. Shh, just don't tell them that biblical marriage was often very, very different from their one-man-one-woman-and-quiver-full-of-blonde-kids utopia. And even as the rest of us try not to notice, actual U.S. member of the actual U.S. Congress, Lauren Boebert, urged those assembled for the Truth and Liberty Coalition from Vision to Victory Conference in Colorado this week that now is the time for Christians to rise up and take their place in Christ and influence this nation as they were called to do. So you think we're taking that out of context, huh? We know that we are in the last of the last days. You get to have a role in ushering in the second coming of Jesus. How cool is that? Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guests. The Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch is the newly minted president of Interfaith Alliance. A writer, editor, and religious activist, 
Paul has spent time in academics as well as leadership positions at Huffington Post Religion and BeliefNet. The non-sectarian nature of that work made it inherently interfaith. After years in a senior position at Auburn Seminary, most recently Paul was with Interfaith America. Paul is in New York City. State of Belief listeners certainly know longtime host Reverend Welton Gaddy well. President of Interfaith Alliance from 1998 to 2015, Welton joins us from his home in Monroe, Louisiana. And I had the pleasure to lead Interfaith Alliance from 2015 until earlier this year. So we've got a lot of institutional memory in this conversation. This won't be just an interview, rather a discussion that explores how Interfaith Alliance was born for a time such as this, and how stories and public conversations can help engage Americans with the critical work of defending true religious freedom and democracy itself. Welton and Paul, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Great to be with you. Paul, I'm going to dive in with you right away. You've spent a lot of time building religious media entities. Why has that been so attractive to you? I think it's a lot about what you started with stories. What are we going to be, you know, what are stories that uh, can invite people into a shared experience to illuminate um, what is important in people's lives? Uh, and also to be able to tell, imagine a society and how religion can interact with a society in a positive way. And diverse religious traditions have each one of them has something to offer and many things to offer. So so the, the goal with all of my work in media has been to lift up stories that sometimes have not been heard and uh, to learn from one another and grow empathy and grow understanding and imagine a future together. So that, that has been a driving principle. So I, I want to know a little bit more about that. Can you remember a time or two from either HuffPo Religion and or BeliefNet when you really felt validated about the importance of that work, is there a, is there a story topic where having high-profile, religion-oriented professional journalism in the mainstream made a real difference? Well, one early story was, and this is controversial, but it was interesting, is that there was, a, there was a, um, an end-of-the-world movement that was happening that was so kind of random and um, so like some some person just saying, hey, it's going to end this day. And people like were surprising numbers of people were buying it. And so this was when we first really had our team together. And Javed Kalim, who is a wonderful religion reporter, had just joined the team. And this was one of his first stories. And I said, I want you to embed with someone who believes this. And I want you to really go deep on like why they believe it, how they believe it, what effect it has on their life. And, and, and not to just like immediately say, oh, they're stupid or they're, you know, or they're just like, you know, ignorant because, you know, these are people who are trying to find meaning. Now, I would say that they were being misled and they were being misled, but we wanted to come at religion stories with respect and generosity towards people because recognizing that no one is disposable, no one is, you know, is beyond, um, you know, us trying to understand one another. And so what we created, the, instead of having like the easy piece, which we could have done, which is like, look at all these idiots. Instead, we had someone, we had him go deep, 
you know, find out about like the, the hurt in people's lives and why they were open to this idea and why they were hopeful about this idea, the end of the earth and what it meant to them. So that's an example of me trying to not take the immediate sort of dismissive approach, but a little bit more try to go deep and in that way understand why people might be motivated by things that personally are, I don't uh, have affinity with, but want to understand better so that I can be in conversation with them. That's great. How about you, Welton? We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. You had written a number of books already. So what made a radio program and a podcast seem like the right way to reach more people? You know, it's an interesting thing. I didn't uh, come to uh, what I was doing to do that, but we began to see there's not a lot of people when I came to uh, my work not a lot of people who knew anything about uh, multiple different religions and how people who want to be in religion and people who don't want to be religion, and can we bring those two together? Also, when I came to the my job, nobody wanted to talk about religion, and nobody wanted to talk about politics. And then everything changed because uh, at that point, then people who were politicians were talking about religion and religious people were talking about politics. And so all of that was clashing and somebody needed to say, we need to do some separation on that. But we also need to know how to bring together ourselves and do something for our, our nation. It, it was fun to do that. And, I, and let me just say this, too. I, I think this is important. A lot of people were on the air at this point. Most of them thought that uh, they had to speak loudly and radically and, and I didn't want to do that. And Interfaith Alliance did not want to do that. Uh, When I went on Air America, I told the leaders that our show would have certain values in it. Truth, for example, uh, diversity, no denunciations uh, on the air, People of all kinds of religion would be on the air, as well as people of no religion. Uh, We wanted disagreements on our uh, program, uh, but we didn't want fights. We wanted people who were working with each other with some respect uh, for each other. So I, I just felt like we were doing something that no one else was really doing at that point. I have to say, like, hearing State of Belief on Air America Radio, it was the first time that I had ever heard a religion discussion that seemed to actually care about what I thought. <laughs> I mean, I had, it was just one of the, it was such a breath of fresh air. It gave me hope. 
to hear your voice on there as someone who has, himself was religious but was talking to people from all different backgrounds and as someone who you didn't know from Adam you know was just but listening in my car or listening at home and saying oh my god like I am not alone in this world or my small little circle but actually we're part of a national conversation it was absolutely revolutionary in the best sense of that word and we're bearing the fruits of it now, um, but I just want to make sure I interject that because it was so important in my own development. Thank you, Paul. That is really important. And Welton, I, I just want to amplify what Paul is saying here and ask you about some of your favorite guests. Uh, I, I know you have featured thousands of people on this show, and uh, I know that uh, Ray Kirstein, our producer, has some clips ready to go. Let's let's talk about some of those guests. Who are who are some of your favorites? I simply cannot not talk first about Walter Cronkite, who had helped us get started with uh, Interfaith Alliance. And Walter and I got to be very good friends. And um, the first person we had on the show was Walter Cronkite. And it was because Walter Cronkite asked me if he could be the first person on there so that um, he could put his stamp on it. And of course, what I said to you just a few minutes ago about uh, the need for uh, truth and diversity and uh, all of that, he had done that. And he had been uh, one that people had found they could trust, knowing that uh, this guy was not going to lead them alone. There has been a general trend that has bothered me. The fact that religion has been brought so much to the fore of our political discussion these days bothers me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it belongs there. The uh, case for a political movement or idea or individual uh, is quite important to our democracy quite clearly. I think it is, uh, well, if we can look at, toward them and say, well, they uh, are, are faithful to their faith, but they are not trying to force their faith upon me as a fellow member of their democracy. Uh, and uh, that is most important in my considerations. Yeah, who else? I guess the other first one I would say is Rachel Maddow. Rachel and I got together very early. You were both on Air America when it started. We were both on on there. And uh, first time I met her, uh, she said, why don't you come over here and do uh, my show? And I said, I'll be glad to do that if you'll come over here and do mine. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, And all of the time after that, we were good friends. And um, when we were together, and I, I don't even know why this this happened, but people told us that, and we both told each other that, we talked to each other in a way that was different than we were talking about any other time. Because she didn't want to do anything but ask me questions, and I didn't want to do anything but ask her questions. And neither one of us would just say, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're both going to do exactly what this is. We're going to find out 
about each other. You wrote these words. I have deep faith 2017 will be more of a hoot than we're expecting. (laughs) Rachel, what happened? A hoot, I mean, in a technical sense of that term. That's a, that's a term of art, really. It's a, I'd love to say it was an acronym for something much more, much more deep. I am, uh, the energy that I feel for my own work right now is a surprise and a pleasure. Like, we are in a, we are in a dark place as a country, and the health of our republic and our democracy and the uh, example of our government is um, all in in pretty bad straits, but um, there's also a lot of work to do mm-hmm. that is energizing. Mm-hmm. I do not feel enervated. I do not feel drained. I do not feel depressed. I feel like, all right, then we were made for this. Like, let's see. Let's show everybody what we're made of. I'll talk more with Paul Rauschenbusch and Welton Gaddy in just a minute. And later, Pew projects continued decline in the number of Christians in America. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. We've got Welton walking down memory lane, and let's continue reviewing some of those favorite guests and conversations. I have to say, uh, Congressman John Lewis, um, Listen, I uh, I was walking on the holy ground, I felt, when I talked with him. And um, he was so good. Uh, we, we got on the plane together some, and uh, that helped. But uh, I remember one time, one evening, I, I had something that I wanted to do with him. I didn't know that we had any chance of getting it, but I, I called him. And um, he said, yeah, at the end of the day, and I will talk with you. And it was um, just a John Lewis moment of getting people not only uh, informed, uh, but getting people inspired. I also remember, I don't remember whether you were there that night, but uh, it was a Democratic Party gathering, and uh, I, I met him walking out that night after it was over. And I I, I waved at him and I said, you got a moment. Of course, I have a moment for you all. And uh, then we had a whole group of people around us with them listening to us. And uh, I can't tell you what John Lewis meant to me. Congressman Lewis, we've seen religion in campaigns that um, has not been very pretty. Is uh, religion going to play a significant role in the campaign this time? Well, it is my hope and and my uh, prayer uh, that uh, religion shouldn't be a major factor, a major role in any uh, political campaign. It doesn't mean that we check our faith at the door and our religious values, uh, but uh, we shouldn't uh, vote for people or against people because of their religious beliefs. We have seen um, in recent weeks with the uh, uh, statements of some of the Catholic bishops and others um, a kind of redefinition of religious freedom that's not quite like what's in the Constitution itself. 
do you feel like that great value is on sound footing, or are we going to have to fight for religious freedom again? Oh, I, it's my greatest fear, again, that we may have to go down that road. Uh, it would not be a, a good thing to do, but we may have to stand up and fight for religious freedom. Uh, we should be free uh, to respect uh, the religious values and views of all of the citizens of this country. I don't know anybody that knows more about freedom than you do and has any more courage to work on it than what you've done. We are very grateful to you for the contributions you've made to helping this nation uh, get somewhere close to where our Constitution was leading us. And I want to thank you. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for all that you do. And thank you for your leadership and for your vision. Wow. Wow. Two of the most inspiring faith leaders of our time, Bishop Gene Robinson, the first gay bishop in the Episcopal Church. Gene is always such a clear moral voice on LGBT issues. And in more recent years, he has always made sure the stress how economic justice, racial justice have to be just as big a priority as justice for LGBT people. With God, uh, there is always hope. <laughs> and, and on those days when I can't believe it myself, I, I put my belief in God, and through God, I can be uh, somewhat hopeful, because um, uh, the world uh, often gets it wrong, the church often gets it wrong, but God never gets it wrong. And and with God, we can do astounding things. So uh, for me, the experience of uh, encountering that kind of hate immediately threw me back onto God. And and I, I literally could not have done any part of what I've been able to do uh, without God. And Jane Holmes Dixon, the second woman consecrated as a bishop in the Episcopal Church, she was a spiritual person who did not mind working for justice in all places. When did you decide uh, to study for the ministry? I was confronted by a woman who's a great mentor in my life, uh, Dr. Verna Dozier, woman, uh, African-American woman here in Washington who was uh, head of the English department for the D.C. public schools. And I was telling her at lunch one day that I was sure that our son David, who was at the time uh, 12 or 13, was going to be a priest. Mm. And she looked at me and she said, listen here, if you want to be a priest, you do it, but you leave that boy alone. <laughs> I rode the train home shortly after that, and my husband picked me up at Union Station, and I told him what Dr. Dozier had said to me, and I thought he was going to laugh uh, and say, well, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And what he said was, I think she may be right. Somebody else I will always treasure knowing was Bishop John Shelby Spong. He kept writing books one book after another, well into his 80s. And each time one of those books came out, he would agree to be with us again for open, humble, witty, and wise conversations. I grew up in a Christian church, an Episcopal church, as a matter of fact, in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
that taught me that segregation was the will of God and quoted the Bible to prove it. They taught me that women were inferior to men by nature and quoted the Bible to prove it. They taught me it was okay to hate other religions and especially the Jews and quoted the Bible to prove it. And they taught me that homosexuals were either mentally sick or morally depraved and, of course, quoted the Bible to prove it. And so my life has sort of been an emergence out of the prejudices that my church planted in me. We've always tried to raise up people who have had a profound change of heart. I'll never forget Dr. David Gushy talking with us about his book, which was literally titled Changing Our Mind About Inclusion of LBGT Persons in the Full Life of the Church. I worked in conservative enough environments for the better part of my career that uh, I really had almost no encounters with LGBT people in my professional life and, and in my personal life either. So I was sadly ignorant of the actual life situations and challenges and discrimination and mistreatment. Facing now, you know, who I understand to be fully now my sisters and brothers in Christ, as well as people out in the broader society, I would say a starting point for this change for me was going to church in a congregation that was, without any specific effort, attracting lots of like formerly alienated or mistreated uh, gay and lesbian Christians who were finding their way into our church. And some of them found their way into my Sunday school class where I teach the Bible every week, a very traditional activity. And then friendships began to develop and stories began to be told. And all of a sudden, my ignorance began to, to be pierced. Of course, Rob Shank uh, went through a very public change of heart on the big culture war issues and spent an hour on state of belief talking very openly about all of that. And that led to a second conversion in my life that I refer to as my conversion to Ronald Reagan Republican religion, which is distinctly different from Christianity. I didn't know that. And I came to know you really at the height of my career in that culture club and in that worldview. And uh, that's why I couldn't have imagined the day when we would sit together like this uh, way back then. But, but what, I, what I came to, to, to conflate was a, a, a kind of warped sense of patriotism and nationalism with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, there came a time when there were days I couldn't tell the difference between Jesus and Ronald Reagan, or later, Jesus and George Bush, or Jesus and Clarence Thomas. I, I, I shifted between heavenly lords and earthly lords, and that became very disorienting and led me to a whole nother journey that lands me in this chair with you. There was the young organizer for the National Organization for Marriage, Louis Marinelli, who renounced that anti-gay organization and went on to advocate for equality. Well, what happened was basically the Summer for Marriage tour that I helped organize gave me the opportunity to go out onto the streets and meet gay people and lesbian people and uh, their families and, uh, that's what changed my heart from an opponent to advocate of civil marriage equality and just having the opportunity to meet some people face-to-face for the first time. Now, that was a really interesting story because a few years later, he ended up in Russia helping build 
the California secession movement from there. He eventually came back and was supposed to run for governor this year, but it looks like he changed his mind on that as well. You know, it's always a thrill to get a big name on the show, but a lot of my favorite interviews have been with people creating profound change in their everyday lives, either because of something that happened to them or because they said, hey, I need to do something about a problem I am seeing. Sometimes we got to see a person grow. Zach Coplin was a high school kid who was being taught creationism in Louisiana public school, just like thousands of other kids. But Zach thought, wait a minute, this can't be right. And he became an effective activist. There's been a couple phases of creationism, and until about 2005, before Dover versus Kitzmiller, creationism, they tried to insert it actively in schools. After Dover versus Kitzmiller, that cut out not only creationism, that was intelligent design. And so creationism isn't allowed to be taught as science anymore. So the way it's inserted into class is through code language, like critical thinking. Now, critical thinking is absolutely great, but you don't need a law to have schools teach critical thinking. My teachers are already teaching me how to think critically. That's part of their job description. Mm -hmm. And so these code words allow quote-unquote, supplemental materials that don't need to be verified the way textbooks work. So they could be just about anything. And the real intent behind allowing these supplemental materials is to allow creationism in the class. And creationism is just not science. It's a religious viewpoint, and the whole idea is you teach science in science class and religion in church, in your mosque, in your Mm -hmm. whatever your place of worship is, Mm -hmm. that's where religion is taught. You go to Sunday school to learn it. Brandon Robertson is a young gay Christian pastor who was also just starting in public life when we met him first. Now he's a magnet for right-wing attacks because he is so effective in his message. He has a huge, huge following on TikTok. I think that there's a whole generation, uh, my generation, the millennials, are looking at the evangelical faith that we've inherited. And we're seeing it have a long history of people like the religious right, Pat Robertson, the Jerry Falwell. And we see them starting off with a really great vision to um, be people of good news. But as they developed, we begin to see them, what seems to us as selling out and giving into power and political persuasion so that they can gain a platform and in so doing, forsaking the core of the gospel of Jesus. And so what makes, I think, me and a lot of people in the millennial generation different is that we're going back and we're re-examining the words of Jesus once again. And what we're becoming convinced of, unfortunately, is that many uh, leaders in the current evangelical system are far from, they don't reflect what Jesus looks like. Uh, We've moved from being people of good news to people of Fox News, Paul and Welton, here's a question you can answer in two words, I hope. Who's the one that got away? Paul, who who haven't you interviewed yet 
that you still hope to get a chance to do? Pope Francis. Okay, that's a goodie. We'll work on that. And Welton, who's the one you didn't get to interview? Uh, You know, I can't tell you because I didn't have that goal. I, I got who I could get at the time. And when I saw that there was a possibility of it, I said, let's go. And most of the time we could do it. Terrific. So I'm going to answer the question about my favorite guests because I had a much shorter career. Ted Johnson, who wrote the extraordinary book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, uh, I think was one of the best uh, interviews that I had the chance to, to do on State of Belief. And Reverend Rob Shank, who has had an extraordinary journey through uh, all sorts of aspects of American religion. It gave us two sensational interviews I was privileged to be a part of, and uh, he'll be back. There's more with Welton and Paul coming up. And later, Pew Senior Researcher on Religion, Stephanie Kramer. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. Paul, you're an ordained Baptist minister with a prominent family ancestry that I think can often be a blessing and a burden at the same time. How did your heritage inform your ministry and your interfaith focus? Well, it's almost exclusively a blessing, I will say. Uh, I have long since given up the aim of being able to top uh, my ancestry, but I, I want to, my goal is to honor my ancestry. <laughs> um, part of it is is the Walter Rauschenbusch legacy, actually, um, who was um, a major articulator of the social gospel. And um, it really actually, reading him helped make me a, a much better Christian uh, and understand like, oh, this is exciting. The way he, the way he used language, the way he used prayer, the way he used, um, just made me really love the faith. It gave me uh, language I didn't know that um, existed. He was a beautiful writer, and um, and so that that has been extremely helpful. Also, the fact that he was great friends with Rabbi Stephen Wise and spoke at synagogues and um, a lot of black churches, black colleges. He sh- he showed a way of being in his own faith tradition, uh, but also recognizing that you always have to be expanding that, speaking to people who um, don't necessarily uh, think or believe exactly like you do, but finding common ground. And the other piece of that heritage is, of course, uh, Louis Brandeis, who uh, um, was my other great-grandfather. And I grew up, my closest cousins were my Jewish cousins. I saw them all the time. We had great love for each other. We had great admiration for one another's families. Uh, I was raised within a Christian household, um, uh, and they were raised within a Jewish household. And we recognized this strength of our families and and recognized that we were going to work together no matter what. And as I as I have said before, like if if uh, 
if heaven in the future doesn't include my my Jewish cousins, I don't want to go there. So uh, so don't 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 try to talk to me about about the afterlife. I'm pretty clear uh, about who I want to be hanging with. So so anyway, that you know, this has been influential. It's also been an important marriage between moving society forward towards constantly working hard to make this world a better place and feeling that that is a religious mandate in the two faith traditions that I am uh, that my family represents and that you can't have an individualistic faith without recognizing that what I do is completely tied in with what my neighbor is doing and my well-being is tied in with theirs so all of that has been a great blessing for me, uh, and I have I have um, laid aside any any goal of trying to compete with these legacies, but trying to honor them. <laughs> you know, I have to say, sociologically, I'm I'm very curious. Uh, marriage between Jews and Christians was not a very uh, usual thing uh, when when your great grandparents were alive, even when their when your grandparents were alive. It's almost a hundred years since these two icons lived. How did these two innovators and divergent faith traditions wind up? <laughs> it's great. I, I'm pleased to say that I am actually writing a biography of my grandmother's life, Elizabeth Brandeis. So, uh, the younger daughter of, of Louis Brandeis and, and Alice Goldmark. And I have, um, actually come across the letters of courtship between my grandparents, one of whom was the son of Walter Rauschenbusch and the other one, the daughter of Supreme Court Justice. And, what was remarkable is that, you know, they were they were asking questions about everything. But what they both really um, what they, there was never a question around, like, will our faith traditions mesh? And in fact, uh, I, I, re I found a letter from Louis Brandeis uh, to my grandfather, Paul Rauschenbusch, saying how much he admired Paul's father. Uh, and so, so there was absolutely, it, it is odd and it is kind of hard to understand from, uh, a, a standpoint of like the, the question of inter, interreligious marriage, uh, today. But what was interesting is that was not at all a factor in, in, uh, in Elizabeth's family, in the Brandeis family. They were thrilled that she was meeting someone whose heritage meshed so much with their morality and what they, they felt was important. And I, I should say that, you know, there's, we can talk more about this at some point, but, um, Louis Brandeis was not brought up in a religious home at all and by intention. And so, uh, and so the, it's just, uh, he did, he, he was never told <laughs> that this was wrong. He married a, 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 a daughter of a, of a, a an important uh, Jewish man who, 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 uh, Joseph Goldmark. Um, but his mother said, I never wanted, um, I never wanted to raise my children in uh, with a belief that could be argued away, and so we are we raise them in the questions of morality, of truth, of charity, of you know valuing one another's, and so it's just a it's a history that I'm looking forward to sharing more in this book that's coming out. But but in the meantime, it it is uh, it's something I've I've had people say um, I was. I, I had a Jewish woman come up to me after I spoke about my uh, about my life a little bit at Chautauqua, and she said, "Your grandfather, your great grandfather, would be rolling in his grave meeting Louis Brandeis." And I was like, "You don't know him. You don't know him. You know, I mean, you know." But I understand. I understand how 
why there's that concern. But in my family, that was not a concern. And I once asked my dad about it, like, did that ever come up? And he said, never, ever. And he knew, you know, he, he knew his grandfather was Louis Brandeis and said that was never, ever a part of the family discussion. May I just say to you, Paul, that uh, after I went to seminary, uh, the Rauschenbusch name was holy. Uh, and, and, and it was because for me, for the first time in the Baptist people I was with, I saw people who finally made me say I knew they were somewhere. I needed that. And I still go to his book and 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 look at it. Uh, and you know what? That also has a, a, a relationship uh, to, to uh, Interfaith Alliance and, and also uh, to our show, because the thing that really stunned me in the early days of, of the show were people who called us uh, and said, look, we never knew a pastor that could talk like you talk. We never knew even more that we could have a Baptist that would be saying what you said. There was a guy that wrote us in the early day and said, we go and get in our swimming pool on Sunday night and we get something to drink with us. And we listened every Sunday night to what you all are doing. And I thought, well, I've got somewhere close to what Roush and Bush was doing. <laughs> well, and I'll say I never heard anybody who talked like you either, but then I grew up in Chicago <laughs> and that explains, uh, explains a lot. Paul, I, uh, I have a very strong Jewish identity and it's a cornerstone of my being able to empathize deeply with marginalized and sometimes targeted groups. You are an openly gay man. You're married. You're a dad. How did your LGBT identity influence you? How, how difficult was coming out to yourself and then later to the public? And how has that informed your heart for those on the margins? Well, I am very grateful for my life. I have been extremely fortunate to have been raised and surrounded by people who affirmed me. You know, my parents were kind of like, well, that's like, you know, that's a little awkward and uncomfortable, but very quickly, like, you know, that passed when I first came out. And I've just, I, I have been very fortunate because I was raised in a tradition where I never heard anything negative about gay people from the pulpit. I never, you know, I, I was kind of like, oh, Wow, look, there's a lot of a lot of Christians who really don't like who I am and that was, you know, but I also um you know, I got I'll I'll, I'll tell you a story about one time when I was really wrestling with it, which was when I was uh I started attending an amazing small Baptist church, Madison Avenue Baptist Church. I was working there when I went to seminary and it was a small church that had one of everything because it was, you know, it was, we had, we had an, we had the Upper East Side matron, but we also had transgender people. We had homeless people. We had people who barely spoke English. We had, it was an amazing place. Everyone there felt like that church was a place they could be themselves and be home. 
And so they, th- that's how I became a Baptist, actually, is because I loved that small Baptist church, and, I, and they wanted to ordain me. And I was very like on- honored to my bones that they would think that I was deserving of that. And so I, I moved forward, and I was in Seattle working at another Baptist church that was welcoming and affirming that was being kicked out because of its welcoming and affirming status. And I was just I – was, I was filled with rage – and I was like, why am I giving my life to this tradition that is treating these people, many of whom are straight, they're put you know, so terribly. Why am I like giving credence to this? This is, you know, forget it. And I had, I had done everything. I had been like, all I needed to do was go through the ceremony at this point. I had been approved. I said, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm walking away. And a, a Baptist minister, minister named uh, Rod Romney, Reverend, Reverend Rob Romney, who was the minister of First Baptist Seattle, said to me, Paul, too many people have worked too hard to get you to where you are today. You, you, you get ordained. You don't have to ever use it, but you, it is not just about you. And I was like, you know, he was a thousand percent right. And, and I did go ahead and get ordained. And it was, it was, that was a moment where I had, I had to wrestle like, yeah, I can, I, you know, I am angry about it. And that anger continues when I see the way the church treats people who are, especially who didn't have the fortune of being raised in the tradition that I was, which was more accepting. It makes me furious, but it makes me even more want to be part of the fight, not just with, with queer people, but with, with people who are pushed to the side, whether that's economically, for race reasons, for immigration status, for, for gender. You know, th- these, are, these are all people who I feel called to be in community with and figure out a way to be together in the best way we can possibly be together. That's what I mean by fulfilling the traditions that I was handed to by Rauschenbusch and Brandeis and many, many others. And so I feel like, you know, being part of a marginalized group has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. Plus, it, it brought me to my husband. I can't imagine being with anybody else. And now we have two incredibly beautiful, wonderful, smart, hysterical kids. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't have imagined a better life than I have right now. Um, so I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it does, it does wake me up with, um, with just, a, I think the right amount of anger, uh, maybe righteous anger, if that's okay. And also a desire to be in community with, with people who are very different than myself. I don't think you know how important that story is to people who are listening, because I've I've known people from lots of different traditions, uh, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and others, who have reached that, uh, I'll call it a Damascus Road moment, um, where they had to make a decision if they were going to go forward or just step off the path. And uh, like you, so many of them, for the betterment of all of us, have decided to to keep moving forward. Well, you had a moment like that too. You you started as a uh, conservative and exclusionary Baptist and uh, came to a recognition that uh, that was no way for a person of faith to live. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yes, I grew up in uh, people who told me that everything they said to me, I needed to believe. And if I didn't believe them, I was probably going to hell. And uh, I couldn't understand that. 
And so I began looking early on saying, I don't believe that. Now, I wasn't telling anybody that, but I, I went on, I went was in two churches that were very good churches, but they were also so, they wanted everybody to be the same way. And if you weren't their way, you weren't there. And I was uh, trying to go into a pulpit and deal with that over and over. I have a good wife who listened to me a a long time uh, about what I was not going to say or what I was not going to do. And when the um, Southern Baptist Convention got really down, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it made me come out and say who I was and say, I am not putting up with that. I believe in this God. I believe what we're all about. And that's where I'm going, whatever else happens after that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us, too. Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch is president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance, defending true religious freedom for all. At 10 o'clock on Wednesday, September 28, 2022, Paul will host a briefing on Capitol Hill titled Christian Nationalism on the Ballot, featuring Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, Reverend Dr. Richard Sizek of Evangelicals for Democracy, Connie Ryan of Interfaith Alliance of Iowa, Simran Jeet Singh of the Aspen Institute, and voting rights advocate Taylor Coleman. For information on joining the live stream of this event, please visit interfaithalliance.org. Paul and Welton, thank you for taking this time to get together. I wish we had another hour or two to do this. Part two of this conversation will air next week on State of Belief Radio. The Religion News Service headline is certainly attention-getting. Fewer than half of Americans may be Christian by 2070, according to new projections. Those projections come from a comprehensive report published by the Pew Research Center entitled Modeling the Future of Religion in America, and I'm happy it brings senior researcher Dr. Stephanie Kramer to our program. Stephanie, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks for inviting me. I know that the report analyzes several different scenarios with charts that look a little bit like we're tracking a hurricane. What variables in the scenario leading to that fewer than half number are important to know? Well, every trend that we looked at, I think, is important to know. The biggest thing that we use in projections in a variety of ways is religious switching, and that's whether or not there's a change between the religion a person is raised in and their current religion. If that is different, then we say that they have switched religions or broad religious categories. We're looking at Christians, the religiously unaffiliated and all non-Christian religions together. Um, We are also interested in recent trends and differences between religious groups in fertility, age structures, migration, Um, And the religious transmission, which is passing along a religious identity or lack thereof from one generation to the next. 
So when you talk about religious switching, are you talking about moving within denominations in a, in a larger faith tradition or moving from one faith tradition to a different one? Moving from one faith tradition to a different one, or more commonly in the U.S., from one faith tradition to no faith tradition. Many people have left Christianity to identify as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. So let me ask you about some of the other scenarios. How much do the potential numbers in 2070 change? And are you able to estimate the likelihood of those scenarios that would not be as as dire for Christianity as the sensational headline makes it seem? Well, there is a range um, in the 2070 outcomes. So in a scenario where all religious switching ended in 2020, you know, these are all hypotheticals, Christians would define by about 10 percentage points and would make up over half, about 54% of the population in 2070. In the most extreme switching scenario, they declined to make up 35% of the population. So that's the range. Um, some of these scenarios are more plausible than others. None of them are likely to play out exactly. So we know all religious switching did not end in 2020. That scenario is implausible, but it demonstrates the impact of switching when we compare it to other scenarios. Um, overall, the scenario that best represents all of the trends that we've studied recently is the scenario with increasing disaffiliation across generations like we've been seeing for years, but with a limit so that more than 50% of people who are raised Christian can't switch out later in life. And that limit comes from a study of 79 other countries. We looked at how many people raised Christian, remain Christian all around the world, and we didn't find any country where more than about 50% of people raised Christian switched out. What do demographic trends have to do with this as well? I mean, you've talked about people switching religions. What do immigration and emigration patterns have to do with your findings? Most immigrants to the U.S. are Christian Um that has been changing in recent years where now most immigrants are coming from Asian countries that may be majority Hindu or majority unaffiliated in the case of China. Um, migration in the projections mostly drives the growth of people of non-Christian religions. Um, we also see different age structures between the groups and that has a certain demographic momentum. Um, among people who are over 75, more than 80% of them are Christian, but among people in their prime childbearing years, only about half of them are Christian. So we have a lot of unaffiliated people concentrating in those younger years. They'll be having children, often raising unaffiliated children. You know, this country is still significantly Christian and will be for the immediate future, at least. And so, of course, the focus of the headline and, and of people's concerns is Christianity. But did Pew look at the trends for other major religious traditions in the United States? We looked at broad religious categories. We would love to have been able to project the future populations of smaller groups like Jews, Muslims, Hindus individually, and we just don't have the detailed witching data going back very far to do that, unfortunately. 
so we looked at all Christians, all religiously unaffiliated, and then all non-Christian religions as three broad categories. So I recognize you can't back this up with data, but do you have any reason to believe that things will be different for other faith traditions than they will be for Christianity? Sure. I think things will be different for people of other faith traditions because they're overrepresented among immigrants. They're growing more through migration recently than uh, our Christians or the unaffiliated. People of non-Christian religions have higher fertility rates, so they're growing through having children more than the other two broad categories. Um, And there's not a lot of switching into other religions. So people of non-Christian faiths are not getting a lot of converts in the way that the unaffiliated are. That's, I think, important information for people to listen to. There, there isn't really going to be a windfall for anybody if you look at it in those terms of people who are exiting one tradition and, and looking for another. Pew is uniquely equipped with a deep library of comprehensive research on this and many other topics. Were there historical trends that were important in creating these long-term projections? We looked at these rates of switching into and out of broad religious categories going back to the early 70s. That's as far as we have very detailed data through the general social survey. It's been going on for about 50 years. Um, Beyond the past 50 years, we we don't know as much about what was happening with religious switching. Very interesting. So a comprehensive report like this one is likely to contain important findings that don't jump to the headlines, like a significant decline in in, uh, Christian affiliation. What else is in this report that it's important for people to pay attention to? I think it's important to note that the religiously unaffiliated are not all non-believers, or even mostly non-believers. Most of them identify as nothing in particular instead of atheist or agnostic. And most of them believe in some kind of higher power or spiritual force. So these are people without a religious identity, without a group that they affiliate with, but not necessarily without any religious beliefs. So my last question is going to sound wacky to you, I know, but I just came back from (laughs) visiting Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. And I saw there what I can only describe as a shrine to Elvis Presley, Uh, the way that uh, his life was depicted, uh, all of it accurate, none of it comprehensive. There was a desire Mm -hmm. to believe in something that Elvis represented. Are there places in American society that are going to fill the role that religion has been playing for people who are not satisfied in their personal lives with the traditional religious expressions? People do find other ways to fill their time, other things to do socially if they don't go to church and things like that. We haven't seen um, a big rise in people getting together because they're all atheists or agnostic or nothing in particular. So the general the general trend against joining the bowling alone trend is is something that applies to faith life as well as other social aspects of American society. Right. It looks like it. 
Dr. Stephanie Kramer is a senior researcher at Pew Research, specializing in religion. The new report is titled, Modeling the Future of Religion in America, and we'll link to it from stateofbelief.com. Stephanie, many thanks for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much for having me. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.